Hello and welcome to the program. I am Luke Hunt and with me tonight is Guy Taylor in Washington. Guy has an impressive history in journalism with the Washington Times where he's the team leader of the uh, national security team. Guy, welcome to the program. Hey Luke, I'm really glad to be here. It's been a few years, Guy, and a lot has changed over the last last few months. Donald Trump is gone, Joe Biden is in, and it has many parts of the world, and including Southeast Asia, kind of scratching their heads and wondering what's going to happen next. And certainly the new administration has been aggressive in the region in terms of talking up America's stock and uh, one of the few policies that Biden seems to be taking on from the Trump era is uh, standing up to China. Definitely. I think we're seeing that Biden is sort of carrying forward where Trump left off on China, Luke. But I also think that the Biden administration has taken a little while to gain steam, particularly with uh, regard, just with the Indo-Pacific as a whole. I haven't seen them announcing anything very new. What I've seen is a, a desire to try and shift the diplomatic focus to the region. And I've seen the deployment of some top officials, like we saw uh, Vice President Kamala Harris go to Vietnam. We saw Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in the region. Mm -hmm. Pretty big developments there was in the Philippines. And, you know, I, I but I haven't seen any major new announcements or policy policy developments. Right. Although we have seen the kind of reaffirmation, if that's the right word, of the Quad Alliance, which was a bit of a sleeper there for quite a while. And it's back on the agenda. The uh, United States, Mm -hmm. Japan, India, Australia, joint naval exercises. The Brits are sending gunboats out to the region. The French are tagging along in those uh, naval exercises. And it seems to be emerging as something of a rival for groups like ASEAN. It's really interesting that you frame it that way, uh, Luke. First of all, yes, absolutely, the U.S., Japan, Australia alliance, and then increasingly with India. If we go back to the shift in nomenclature for the American security establishment from the Asia-Pacific to during the Trump era, early on in the national security, uh, the annual national security strategy document, the region was basically renamed the Indo-Pacific as a kind of nomenclature shift and a nod to the Indians to try and uh, sort of lure New Delhi into this alignment with Washington, basically against China, to put it in, in really blunt terms. So now we've got India, the US, China, and Australia. Now, this is not a formal alliance or anything. This is uh, the Quad, and it's in the news right now. We're, we're seeing a, a pretty big summit-level meeting coming together uh, in Washington with the four heads of states. But that you would frame it as an alternative to ASEAN, I think, is interesting, because ASEAN is really, I think it's viewed in Washington as a regional institution, whereas the Quad, I think, is viewed very much as a big, uh, bigger, all of Indo-Pacific all of the Asia-Pacific institution. At the same time, I think the American emphasis on the Quad that transcends ideology, right? Mm -hmm. Obama was trying to do it. 
and then it went away for quite a while. And then Trump, at the end of Trump, we saw Robert O'Brien, Mike Pompeo, these operatives that were advising Trump on national security and foreign policy, they really picked up and ran with it. I think the idea was not exactly a rejection of ASEAN, but it was this idea that like the Americans realized, you know, trying to engage with ASEAN as an institution as like the, the most important of the landscape of uh, multilateral institutions. You know, remember, out of ASEAN grow things like the Asian uh, National Regional Forum, ARF. Yes. I think I, I forget exactly how to say no, it. No, you're right. So you're quite right. I think there's this, this, there's this sense in the American democratic foreign policy establishment that these institutions have sort of been co-opted by China in the past 20 years. And uh, that essentially the Chinese economic instrument of power has been wielded by Beijing to sort of coerce the smaller nations of ASEAN to essentially refuse to rally around any U.S.-driven initiatives, uh, whether they're economic, diplomatic, or security-focused, to sort of turn ASEAN into a vehicle for countering or containing uh, China's rise as a global superpower or even a regional power, and particularly to turn ASEAN into something that could kind of stop the Chinese from, say, building military bases on islands that are claimed by four or five nations in the region that happen to be democracies. These efforts have kind of, these efforts to do that, if you look at the the end of the Obama administration, mm -hmm. there were these attempts to get ASEAN nations to sign something like a, a security document committing just to the peaceful resolution of territorial disputes without threats of force. You remember this? I yes. think it was about 2016, 2015. And basically, uh, just to get a diplomatic document on the table that said, hey, ASEAN, should, it should be like the, the leading regional institution to uh, remind China that it can't just push everybody around. The catch is that that document actually came to the fore and everybody signed it and oh, it had zero mention of uh, the South China Sea or of China in it. Right. So it, yeah. it was almost like a kabuki theater in the end, or, or actually like a kabuki theater that, that, that failed. It was like a mess because the U.S. effort wasn't even really symbolic in the end, and the document itself came away with no muscular content at all. So I think just to, to tie that up, when you're looking at why are the Americans now focused on the quad, Instead of, of I mean, they're, they're still going to participate in ASEAN, but yeah. why are they, they trying to stand up something else that's really about democracies? And, and I think if you're looking at an alternative to ASEAN, I would call it the, this idea of the quad plus. What would the quad plus be? Would that be some of these other nations like the Philippines, possibly even Vietnam, Singapore, that could be kind of plugged in here and there? to this informal alliance of the Quad. Uh, I think that's where we are right now with this. Right. I'm sure uh, Indonesia would like to get in there as well, as uh, Mohan Malik, my old uh, lecturer and a very senior commentator, put it that uh, Indonesia sees itself as the uh, fulcrum in terms of straddling the India-Pacific. Uh, there are some issues there with politicians and uh, their history of human rights abuses, in particular Prabowo, who could be the next president of Indonesia. But nevertheless, Indonesia is well known for its, it's... Often it's indifferent to ASEAN. It's a powerhouse. It's the economic 
you know, it's got a population of 270 million people thereabouts, and it's massive compared to other countries in the yeah. region. And I would like to see itself more on par with uh, Australia, India, Japan, these sorts of countries than, say, Cambodia or Myanmar. I couldn't agree more. I've visited and reported from Indonesia twice over the years and had amazing experiences. And obviously all in the the post-Suharto era, this would be in the last sort of 10 years. And I, you know, I I don't think that American policymakers are that aware of this, but certainly American intelligence is, is that Indonesia has this um, really influential um, ethnic Chinese population that has a lot of money and uh, owns a lot of property. And I think it's really hard to try and get a read on the influence of that population. You know, I don't, I don't want to on, yeah. on the, the, the sort of foreign policy direction or security identity of Indonesia. I think that's a kind of like uh, there's an implication there that I don't fully understand, but it, it feels important to bring up. You know, that aside, I think when you're talking about countries like Indonesia and something like the Quad Plus, you've got to be a little bit of a realist about it. And you have to sit there and say, and I think the same goes for the Philippines, by the way, you have to sort of sit there and say, what incentive do these uh, countries really have to participate in something driven by um, the Aussies and uh, the Japanese and the Americans and even the Indians? Is is it money? Is is it a promise of development loans or or some kind of economic incentive? Or, Or is it purely ideological? And it's sort of saying, well, you'll watch out because China is this autocratic power and it's going to only give you money in exchange. You can't be trusted. I mean, that's ideological. And I think when we look at what incentive is being offered, it's Mm. not entirely clear to me. It's really ideological. And that's important because as an American, despite all the bad that comes with American foreign policy, I'm a pretty big believer in transparency, liberty, democracy, these things, like even as as a trying to be an impartial journalist, and those things are really appealing. I've always felt, especially when I'm in Southeast Asia, uh, most recently a couple of years ago in Singapore, it always stuns me how far that goes. Right. How, when you get into the educated class of, of people in the region, regardless of their religion, regardless of their ethnicity or, or their national identity, there's this sense of unity with that democratic ideal of freedom, free media, freedom of religion, uh, democratically elected governments, people really want that in the region. I agree. Genuinely. I don't think I'm making this up. So uh, so it's possible that this ideological connection could be could be enough to, to sort of keep things going, especially I think if the Americans are able to deliver in mm-hmm. terms of security. Uh, pro- I, I don't know. I mean, I think that... You know, well, I think what you're saying is quite right. I mean, the Chinese, as I understand it... Uh, talking around the traps, have become quite sensitive to criticism. I don't mean that in the traditional way. You say anything bad about China and there's no shortage of trolls who are going to jump all over you. But uh, I was speaking to uh, a think tank chap in Singapore the other day and he was he just noted that um, his words were uh, carefully chosen, that it doesn't matter whether it's a pro-China government or a not so pro-China government, what really matters is that they are now very sensitive to the quite a massive backlash 
from the general public in many, many countries over Chinese investments and Chinese behaving mm. badly. And mm. yes, Beijing yeah. is a, the central power structure, but at the end of the day, mm. Chinese companies still have to go out and build the Belt and Road Initiative and they're getting yeah. a lot of flack from the locals and that's not good that's not good for investment either. So there seems to be a bit of a rethink on all sides of the Pacific on this one. Well, I agree with you. And, you know, I, it reminds me of a visit I had a few years ago to mm. uh, Nepal. In Nepal, um, Chinese companies had built, um, uh, if you've ever been to Kathmandu, you'll realize it's a, an amazing, incredible place. But it, it is several million people. And I don't know if there is a traffic light in the, <laughs> in the city. Yeah. I mean, there, maybe there is. There probably are. I, I'm exaggerating. But it is a kind of really chaotic uh, traffic scene. And people get run over by cars and, and motorbikes and things. And, and so these Chinese companies came in and built these walkways to um, kind of make it so people could go from neighborhood to neighborhood. And it's this amazing, really simple development project. The problem mm-hmm. is the walkways, where they're positioned, turned out to be totally illogical. And you, so you, if you went down to the ground level, people were would curse about this stupid construction project that doesn't even work because you can't get across. And, and so I think this is not a knock to the Chinese because I've been reporting on, on Belt and Road from the U.S. perspective and how the U.S. reaction to it for years now. And I, what I can tell you about Belt and Road is that it's massive and it, it, it's bigger than anything the Americans have tried to do in terms of foreign investment since really the, the, the advent of the World Bank and the IMF. It's incredible, right? So there, there, there really are big investments going on emanating out of Beijing. The problem is that when you do those investments, you open yourself to criticism from things like local groups in a place like Kathmandu who do actually have some political influence. And they say, these projects you're doing are, are crap. And then when you, you dovetail that, with a push of American propaganda in the Trump era that mm-hmm. really smears Belt and Road. And those two things align. I think the Chinese are, are going to wake up to the fact that being a regional superpower or being the kind of country that can come forward with something like Belt and Road comes with a price. Absolutely. And the price is that you're, const- you're constantly going to be accused of doing a bad job. You're constantly going to be accused of meddling. And so, you know, I, at the same time, Luke, um, I think it's pretty important when it comes to U.S.-China uh, stuff in the Biden era now especially. Because I think we lost this a little in Trump. But I do think if you listen to Kurt Campbell, and Kurt Campbell is an important player in the Biden administration because he his entire uh, identity is not just tied to what he did at the beginning of the Obama administration 12 years ago and this idea of, hey, he coined the pivot to Asia. But idea. It's more that, that Kurt Campbell, I think, is a respected, um, okay, there are a lot of people on the right in Washington that loathe him, but he is generally respected for having an idea of what's going on in the region. And he, I think that Kurt, Kurt Campbell has been saying, look, we need to be clear that it's competition. It's not a clash. And that right. there are areas where the U.S. and China really they want to get along and work together. And I think it's really important to remember that it's not just this angry American posturing. There isn't this Thucydides trap going on necessarily, that in fact, there could be peaceful interaction. And that's that's pretty important. That's why I think part of the engagement coming from the Biden administration has been focused on John Kerry. Mm-hmm. Again, not very popular on the right, the political right in Washington right now. However, 
the right is not in power and the left is and they've got the former secretary of state going and spending days in a row in beijing meeting with all these officials under the guise of talking about joint climate change initiatives which is very important because of the sure. but at the same time you're talking about john kerry john kerry knew more chinese high-level officials as a senator than than most american officials ever will and then as secretary of state he was, uh, you know, notorious for his visits to China. I actually went to Beijing with him uh, at one point, I think, in 20, mm. 2014. Anyway, I'm off the off the rails there a little bit, but let's no, keep going. That's fine. Why the slow takeoff in Washington? Donald Trump left, uh, I think it was 400 senior positions in um, the State Department. He basically never filled them, and that could work in a positive and a negative way for Biden in that you you have this enormous vacuum in the diplomatic corps and he can fill it with anyone he wants. Has that had much to do with the slow takeoff or are they just kind of sitting down and preparing themselves for the long haul? And I think it was uh, Sherman's visit to uh, Indochina in June was pretty much the first kickoff, yeah. if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. So a um, couple of reasons for that. I mean, one is the Biden administration, uh, for all the media hype, isn't isn't necessarily more organized than the Trump uh, people were. <laughs> okay. uh, this, really, yeah. I mean, I just to be honest, uh, two is uh, COVID-19, by the right. way, this global pandemic. Right. OK, that slowed everything down. And then three, I think we have to realize Biden has, has been in office now for, I'm going to guess, 150 days. Good guess. Um, we're not even a, we're not even a year in, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's 200 days. So so we're at this point where you know 50 years ago when we didn't go through five news cycles every 36 hours and and have this sort of uh, mania of uh, internet in the palm of our hand 24 hours a day, um, I don't know that we would have called what Biden is doing a slow takeoff. I think right. we would be agog at how many balls he has in the air at one time, uh, and and so uh, you know that. I think that that's really it. I think the question now, though, becomes once you get that first run of officials to sort of settle in or drop off, who does Biden appoint and is there something new that happens? It was interesting that Vice President Harris would go to Vietnam, but Vice President Harris is kind of a foreign policy rookie. So in some sense, that trip from the very American domestic political sense was an attempt to sort of pad her resume as a future presidential candidate, as somebody who, you know, remember, she also went to South America before that. She's really been uh, going around the world showing her stuff as somebody who can handle this. Uh, But in terms of it being a a really focused foreign policy initiative, I, I, you know, what ultimately came of it. Um, right. I, I think something did come of the Lloyd Austin visit to the Philippines, though. That was pretty important. I think there we saw that we're trying, uh, despite a lot of antipathy in Washington toward Rodrigo uh, Duterte, talk about being trolled for saying that, I'll, I'll, there'll be a column written about <laughs> in some uh, newspaper in Manila. But for all of the antipathy, you know, I think that Austin wanted to show the Filipinos, hey, we're listening. You know, you you matter to us. And and when you threaten to, or when you move ahead with trying to trash our agreement, you know, it's not just about weapons sales here. We actually care about the Philippines. We have a huge uh, and influential uh, Philippine 
uh, oh, American population, and we have a long history that goes way back militarily in the Philippines, and and we also cherish Filipino democracy. So there was a lot there, and I think that Austin secured, uh, if I'm not mistaken, basically a reversal from the Duterte administration on the the uh, defense agreement issue, which has been bandied back and forth for years now. But so yeah. that, that that seemed important. It's it's in a interesting place at the moment with the elections coming up, although there's still a year out, but uh, Duterte's running as vice, he's got a close relative running as president, Manny Pacquiao looks like running, and if a, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if a popular boxer actually did win the presidency there, and uh, the sort of uh, irreverence I, wait, I would refer yep. to Manny Pacquiao as a popular basketball player. Because what <laughs> people don't realize is that he, he's yep. like just as obviously he's one of the most world famous best boxers of all time. He's, le he's legendary, uh, but he also I think he plays point guard and he may own his own team in Philipp Philippine basketball. Um, big <laughs> that, big sport in the Philippines. That basketball. won't hurt. Then that won't hurt his chances at all. Yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, there seems to be a kind of, uh, you know, the irreverence that uh, Duterte treated the Americans with when he first came to power and the sort of opening of uh, welcoming arms for the Chinese. Uh, that all mm. seems to have uh, a mild flip-flop, to put it politely. Mm. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, Duterte is a populist. Uh, you know, the... The American left, I think, likes to forget that um, Duterte was elected, uh, and right. he. I, I don't want to. Uh, look, there's a lot of questions about his government's human rights record. Well, but, there's a lot of blood um, on the floor with his war on drugs. Uh, that's that's not right. Near, it's not nearly I, written about like it was, but there are a lot of dead I, people. I drove around. around Yep. I drove around Manila in the middle of the night um, going from crime scene to crime scene with a group of other journalists. Yeah. Uh, and lit you know, so literally, you know, uh, uh, saw and, and, and smelled that blood on the floor. It's, it, was a, it was a rough situation for a few years there. I also think, you you know, uh, and, and if you want, you can easily Google Human Rights Watch uh, the Philippines and you'll see all sorts of documentation yeah. Uh, of what happened. At, at the same time, I think that uh, Manila did have a drug problem. And I think if we are trying to figure out whether or not uh, Duterte was just using this, uh, you know, authorization for the local police or the state police to go out and, and just kill people, at, at, was he using that to target opposition figures? I don't know that we've actually really ever seen any evidence of that. I think what we've seen is that it was a it was a odd and, and nasty uh, misuse of local power over a security, bad secure, local security policy. Um, sure. I do know that with Leila de Lima, who's kind of the head of the opposition in Manila, the, the stories of trying to smear her as somebody who came after Duterte over uh, human rights abuses are pretty epic. Mm. And he, she's been thrown in, jail, in and out of jail by the administration. And I think all of these things are important to to the U.S. And sometimes this stuff gets thrown under the tablecloth a little bit because the security focus is there. And this idea of, you know, mm. well, the Americans, the, it's, is it just a security relationship about China? You know, right. 
or is it something more symbolic? Looking a little further afield, Afghanistan, has that damaged, changed uh, mm. impressions of Biden? Has it, uh, will it hurt his longer term position? And uh, I'm kind of wondering how Southeast Asians, uh, particularly the comparisons between the evacuation of Kabul and Saigon in 1975, mm. that's got enormous headlines over here. How is yeah. that going to impact on his presidency? I think it's too early to tell still. Um, I think we're going to know more in the next couple of weeks when we get a sense of how much theater comes out of the American legislature and uh, trying to hold the administration to account for uh, why the withdrawal devolved into this chaotic evacuation scene to begin with. When we were promised by Biden from the campaign trail right into the White House that this would not happen. Um, why was it so botched? And then also, I think you're going to you're going to see we, we have to measure how much discussion there is in Washington over the coming month or two or three or four of uh, how can it be that the Taliban is now back in power in Kabul? Why did we allow this to happen? It doesn't matter whose fault it is. Why did we allow this to happen? And of course, I don't know yet. Yep. I don't know yet how those discussions are going to play out, and, and how also they're going to reverberate in this sort of hyper communication state we're in with the media these days. You know, mm. what is the impact of that going to be on Biden domestically? What is it going to be on American foreign policy? I, I feel like it's a little bit too early to tell. It's possible that some of this could actually turn in Biden's favor. I have heard from some. East Asian diplomats in Washington, uh, that there's some concern, you know, that the Americans could cut and run this way. Uh, and to, to put it in Tony Blair's mm. uh, former British prime minister statement, that it was this adherence to this imbecilic policy slogan of end forever wars. Right. Know, the Americans could just do that and not realize that there was a lot of good happening. There was a lot of good. From, yeah. yeah, so I, but I, we could go down a, yeah. a long rabbit hole there. I think what's important, and this is always a really hard exercise in Washington, is to realize that your moves in one theater are being watched incredibly closely by your friends and adversaries in another theater. And I think the Southeast Asian theater is different from uh, the South Asian theater or the Central European or Central Asian theater, sorry, of Afghanistan. <coughs> But yes, I think that there needs to be an awareness that the Afghanistan withdrawal has people scratching their heads. And also, I think it's, it's presented an opportunity for regional leaders in Southeast Asia to latch on to a point and say to the Americans, we want something from you because the way you behaved in that theater has us worried. And unless you give us what we want, uh, we, you know, we mm. might not be, we don't trust you. So that, the, I don't know if you follow this, this idea is mm. that the consequences of the Afghanistan debacle for America, not just for Biden, are potentially uh, big and uh, not good. The evacuation of Afghanistan is, of course, coming across as far more powerful given the um, 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that's going to play out over the coming weeks. But I think what happens next, I mean, a week is a long time in politics these days, as you're talking about the news cycles and America has its uh, security palm right across the globe. 
and I'm sure there are going to be other issues that arise over the next six months, 12 months, two years before the next elections that will probably deflect a lot of what happened in Kabul away. I agree, and I think that it's important to remember that as much as there's a lot of motion and evolution in East Asian geopolitics, Mm -hmm. and that China is this dominant and rising power, I think it can be easy to forget that the United States, two decades into the 21st century, even with this Afghanistan debacle as a backdrop, the United States remains clothed in uh, immense informational power. When I say informational power, the ability of the American media and political space to shape public opinion in other areas of the human species remains uh, really, really strong. So I I think what you'll see with the Biden administration is an attempt to take the quad initiative and generate a large number of headlines around it and discussion and criticism and support, all of these things. And I think that Beijing will probably willingly go along with that. We'll say, wow, because because if the Americans are so focused on the quad to move on from their other foreign policy problems, that that means that China must take priority. And that sort of helps, I think, China's image in, in some uh, uh, difficult way. At the same time, I think just a, I have this kind of thought about the quad that if we're going back to it, this idea yep. that if you were to strip it down into sort of really base 20th century terms, and say that you know what the Americans are doing with the Quad is hedging against the possibility that China may actually become much more offensive uh, in the security realm in the next 10 years or 20 years. I know from speaking to scholars in the region that there's a lot of pushback against this very American idea that the Chinese are going to uh, suddenly become, uh, you know, these expansionist military, uh, you know, invade other countries. And there's pushback against that. But there's strong fear in the United States, I think, in in the establishment, not just among sort of hawks and and right wing uh, conservatives and security types, but also among the democratic dove establishment, there is this concern that China could become a lot more aggressive in the security realm than it already is. And there's even fear that China already is more aggressive than anybody is willing to admit. And I think when we look at it from that perspective, when we talk about the quad and we talk about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, they see that what the United States is doing is basically lining up an alliance for what could be a massive conflict with China. And that alliance seems to have India in it. It seems to have Australia. It seems to have Japan. And then this talk of Quad Plus also seems to have five or six other nations from South Korea on down to Indonesia, the Philippines, maybe even Vietnam. And that this is a very blunt way of looking at it. It's somewhat disturbing. But the reality is it's a reminder to Beijing that if you really are going to flirt with great military power expansion, this is what you're going to be facing, is this American ability to rally an alliance very quickly that rivals the allies in World War II. At the same time, I think that the other possibility of getting the two avoiding that type of conflict is that these countries in the the middle, you know, from South Korea on down to uh, the Philippines, to Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, that these countries are in a gray area. 
between that Chinese influence, the Chinese economic instrument of power, and then that American alliance idea. And I don't know that that bodes well for those nations, because being in that middle ground, uh, while you might be able to benefit from relations with both sides, I think that there comes with that kind of torment of not really knowing which side that you're on. And that's something that uh, is part of where we're at right now when we look at America's position in the region. And on that note, I'm going to say, Guy Taylor, thank you very much. It's been wonderful to chat with you. Uh, Luke, you you do this uh, amazing stuff as a journalist, and uh, you've got followers like I'll me. It. It's an honor to, to get on and chat with you anytime. <laughs> Thanks very much, Guy.